Good morning, Midtown. Welcome to worship. And as we come in to, to worship the Lord this morning from wherever you are, uh, we are always tempted because of our own unbelief to go back and living in shame and fear, and especially uh, in light of the, the way that things are unfolding in our world right now, we are especially tempted to return to living out of shame and fear. Uh, but I, I'm going to call us into worship this morning from Malachi 3. I want you to hear these words from the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And the answer to that question is, is we shall return by faith. Faith in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us, what, how God says he feels about us and his stance toward us, that we are loved by him, we are reconciled to him, we have been adopted uh, into his family. And so that's how we return. We return by putting down ourselves and, and picking up this great God that we now worship together. So let us come and worship the Lord together. Hey, friends, um, let's sing and worship together. As you sing these words, um, let yourself be reminded of who God is, your fortress, your hiding place, full of mercy for you. Through every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance, I believe that you are my fortress, you are my portion. You are my hiding place. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe through every blessing. Every promise, every breath I take, I believe that you are provided, you are protected, you are the one I love. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you. truth, the life, I believe you are, I believe that you are, sing new horizon, it's a new horizon, and I'm set on you, and you meet me today, with mercies that are new. All my fears and doubts, they can all come to Because they can't stay long when I'm here with you It's a new horizon, and I'm set on you And you meet me today with mercies that are new All my fears and doubts, they can all come to Because they can't stay long when I believe the truth, the life, I believe you are the way, 
the truth, the life I believe you are. It's new horizon, and I'm set on you. And you meet me today with mercies that are new. All my fears and doubts, they can all come to because they can't stay long when I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you Lord, let our time today be a time of hearing and receiving your voice. Please remind us who we are by reminding us whose we are, and that's yours. Fill us with all of the joy and the conviction and the gratitude and the radiance that come with knowing that we belong to you. We love you. Amen. Hey, Midtown, it is uh, a joy to be with you again, even though we long to be together in person. Um, we're going to dive into the Word now together. So if you would, uh, you can open your Bibles or read along on the screen. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. This is Ephesians 1, uh, verse 3 through 16. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and be believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's the word of the Lord. So this summer, uh, we are going to be in a new series, and we're calling that series The Prayers of Paul. Over and over in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote over half the New Testament, he will say in his letters to the churches, he'll say things like, I'm praying for you that, or he'll say, I'm asking you church in Ephesus, or I'm asking you church in Galatia, will you pray for me these things? And so I know this might come as a shocker, but the Apostle Paul prayed, and the Apostle Paul needed prayer and asked for prayer. And so this summer, we're going to be looking at many different instances. We're going to take some selections 
from across Paul's letters. We're going to be looking at the prayers of Paul together. But before we dive into those selected prayers of Paul this summer, before we hop all over the New Testament looking at how Paul prayed and what Paul prayed for and what he needed prayer for, we're starting in this section of Ephesians 1. Why would we start our series on the prayers of Paul? Why would we start here in Ephesians 1? Well, as hard as that section may have been to follow, as much that is going on in that section that was just read, this entire section actually leads us to the doorstep of prayer. After 12 verses, that was 12 straight verses that, uh, that I just read. After 12 verses, verses 3 through 14, Paul then says in verse 15 and 16, and I'm, I'm combining them, but he says this, For this reason, I don't stop praying. For this reason, I'm continually praying. So what reason, what is the for this reason in Ephesians 3 through 14? What is the for this reason that Paul is referring to in verse 15? What is the reason that is so central, so foundational, so powerful that hurls Paul to the doorstep of prayer? What is it in, the, in these 12 verses that causes Paul to not stop praying? So before we talk all summer about the prayers of Paul, we're going to start here in Ephesians 1. We need to talk about the reason for Paul's prayer. What is the reason that hurls Paul to be a man of constant prayer? And that is found in verse 3 through 14. And what we just read, that, that section, verse 3 through 14, is actually in the original Greek language of the New Testament. It's actually one giant run-on sentence. It's almost like Paul doesn't take a breath. There's no commas, there's no periods in the original language. Paul cannot stop. He's just saying one thought after another, almost like an ADD run-on dream sentence where he just can't stop imagining. He can't stop dreaming about all the truths and all the realities that is true for the Christian. One commentator said, this is perhaps the most monstrous sentence that I've ever encountered in Greek. Another scholar said, this marvelous spiral of verses 3 through 14 is without rival in all of Greek literature. What they're saying, and what every commentator would say about this passage, is that there is nothing quite like Ephesians 1, 3-14 in the entire New Testament. It stands alone as an incredible statement, an incredible sentence of Paul. It would be difficult to fully unpack all that Paul says in verse 3-14. Like I said, it's one run-on sentence, and our English Bibles try to break that up by adding commas and adding periods and even adding verse numbers. But it may be helpful for you in your own private time. Go read Ephesians 1 through 14 straight through without pausing, without stopping for a sentence uh, ending or a sentence beginning. Read it all the way through and you might get the sense, you might start to get a sense of the joy and the enthusiasm that Paul was experiencing when he was writing about such wonderful things. But just before he gets going on this run-on sentence, the opening line actually of this run-on sentence, Paul attempts to almost whet the appetite for what he's about to lead the reader through. In verse 3, Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then for the next 11 verses, he goes on to try to articulate just what he meant when he said every spiritual blessing that is now ours in Jesus. It's a lavish, extravagant, endless feast that he sets before the reader from a grammar level, if you took out just about every other part of speech in the run-on sentence of verse 3 through 14, 
If you took out every other part of speech except potentially the action verbs or the acts of God, even the ancillary acts of God in these verses, you would begin to get um, a, a brief window into the enormity of what Paul is trying to communicate. Listen to the actions of God toward his people in this one run-on sentence. It says that he's blessed us, he's chosen us, he predestined us, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, he adopted us, he's revealed himself to us, and he's given us the Holy Spirit, and he's given us an inheritance. And those are just the actions of God. That doesn't even speak about all the phrases and the clauses and the adjectives that add depth and color and wonder to those actions of God. The point is this, we will not be able to cover in one sermon all that Paul is talking about in verse 3 through 14. There's too much beauty to cover. If you think about an ornate piece of stained glass, there's, there's kind of two ways to experience the beauty of stained glass. You can, you can certainly get up close and see almost every inch of intentional placement and intentional sculpting that the artist did. And you can get meaning and beauty. You can get um, wonder from staring at the micro view of the stained glass. Or if you, if you just uh, back up a few feet from the zoom in and you begin to see the whole picture and you begin to see the macro view of this piece of stained glass, you would begin to get a fuller picture. And there's certainly beauty on both levels. You can get a beauty from, from studying the, the, the intricacies of the piece of art, or you can get a full picture and see the beauty from standing a few feet back. Ephesians 1 is certainly a stained glass masterpiece. And we could spend a lot of time studying the micro view of it. We could zoom in and study each word, study each word that Paul says in this run-on sentence. And we will study a little bit of the intricacies. We will zoom in a little bit. But our hope today is to, is to step back to get a full macro view of what Paul is talking about. We will notice some of the detail and some of the color, but we're going to try to stay high level on the macro view. And here's the macro view of the Ephesians 1 masterpiece that Paul just led us through in verse 3 through 14. Paul is painting a picture of the salvation that God has accomplished on the grandest scale for God's people. We see here the grand storyline of God's saving work on behalf of his people from beginning to end. We see the grand masterpiece of all that God has done to save his people. Now remember, before we walk through or try to look at this macro picture, remember, we're trying to understand what Paul says in verse 15, right after the long run-on sentence, where he says, for this reason, I've not stopped praying so why would the Lord's grand story of salvation for his people, if that's the macro view of verse 3 through, 3 through 14, why would that be what Paul says, for that reason, I have not stopped praying? Well, let's zoom in briefly on just one part of this masterpiece of salvation. We're going to notice something. Is that after Paul will give an array or a bombardment of terms and descriptors of salvation, Three times in that run-on sentence, he gives a somewhat repeated phrase, and they're almost summary statements. They're almost anchors that kind of turn to the next thought for him. And he almost repeats word for word three times these summary statements all throughout the run-on sentence. 
And though they're slightly different, let me read for you these verses again in tandem so you could try to hear the repeated point that Paul is trying to make about the grand story of redemption and salvation that God has accomplished. This is verse 5, verse 9, and verse 11. I'm going to read them straight through. Verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse 9 says, Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. And verse 11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. According to the purpose of His will, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God's will is the anchor in the grand masterpiece of salvation. What force made the masterpiece of salvation happen? God's will did. What carved out the steps and made the steps happen for our salvation? God's will did. The word will here uh, simply means the plan. But it's not necessarily when we think of the plan, we might think of something we would write down on paper and follow in a monotonous, robotic way. This is more a plan that speaks of of volition. It speaks of a person's desired will or outcome. It's, it's what someone wants to happen. It's what someone plans because they want to see something take place. God had a plan for the salvation of his people. And just like when we plan out a gathering with friends or planning out your wedding, we plan things because we want them to happen. It's not just that the Lord planned the salvation of his people. He wanted it, so he planned it. Plans don't just happen instantaneously. Plans happen when, when our desires to see something happen meets our volition and meets our ability to enact a plan to make that thing happen. And so because plans happen before anything is enacted, when exactly did God set out his will? When exactly does Ephesians 1 tell us that God set out this plan, this desired will of his? Verse 4 says this, before the foundation of the world. Now that may seem like a theoretical or hypothetical time frame. That may seem like fairy tale language. And when we're trying to get a grip on what is the reality of God's will, to say something like before the foundation of the world may make that reality a little bit more imaginary. But for the inventor of time himself, for the spinner of the cosmos, this is not a hypothetical situation. God wanted to plan to save you before the world existed, which means God planned to save you before you did anything or before I did anything. He set his redemptive will after us before we took a breath, meaning if he set out his will to redeem and adopt and choose us before we did anything to deserve it, then trust me, there's nothing we could do to undeserve it. He set it in motion before the world began, so there's nothing that happens after the world begins that can undo his plan. His choosing us before the world begin, began removes us from the equation. In the best way possible, it removes our ability to earn it, to keep it, or purchase it, and, and it removes our ability to lose it. A simple way of uh, humbly looking at this would be to acknowledge that we're simply not that cosmically important. 
we actually can't alter what the creator of the universe decided to do before he created the universe. We're a part of that created order, and so nothing we could do once we're in that created order could undo or redo what he set in motion before he created us. And if that weren't enough, Paul adds another layer to the masterpiece here. Twice in those sentences where Paul is talking about God's will, God's planning, God's God's desiring to see this plan take place, he says this, according to the purpose of his will. That word purpose is the Greek word eudikia, which in many English Bible translations, not the one that we read, but in many other translations, translators translate that word pleasure, and they say it like this, according to the pleasure of his will. When that word eudikia is used all throughout the New Testament, it usually gets translated when someone is trying to take pleasure or delight in something or when someone is delightfully glad to see something happen. God chose to do this because it brought him pleasure to do it. God planned it before time began that he would choose, forgive, adopt, and redeem us because it was his great delight to do so. He spent every dollar on us because he enjoyed doing it. Like the most precious grandparent you've ever met, he loved to lavish out. So why did God the Father labor for our good? Why did he bleed for our redemption? Why did he condescend for our comprehension? Why did he predestine us for our security? Why did he forgive us for our freedom? Why did he adopt us for our belonging? It was according to his good pleasure. It pleased him to do it. In the least selfish way possible, Jesus never does anything that doesn't please him. But his pleasure is not self-seeking. His pleasure is always others-driven. But please make no mistake, his laboring, his bleeding, his forgiving, his adopting was all driven by what brings him pleasure. He is infinitely happy. He is eternally blissful. And before time began, The Trinitarian Godhead was not lacking any good thing. They were not without pleasure. They were not needing more pleasure. But in their perpetual blessed state, they decided that from that place of infinite pleasure, that what they wanted to do in their pleasure was to draw in a bride, a worn and weathered, stained by sin and covered in shame, drawing in the bride that he might make her his own and make us radiant. And it pleased him to do so. And this is what the Apostle Paul is beating the drum of here for 12 straight verses in one long run-on sentence. He's saying, let me tell you who you are, but let me tell you who you are by telling you who Jesus is and all that he has done for you. And the way that he lands our identity by having our identity be founded in Jesus, by having our identity be rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done for us, actually gives us the most secure identity possible. You and I in Christ could literally not be more secure because his love towards us originated with him and with his pleasure. So for order, in order for his love to change, And for our identity to change, he would have to change. 
Paul is landing us in an identity that is rooted in and secured in all the doings of our God. And so for our identity to change, God would have to change. And that's what Paul says after 12 straight verses. For this reason, I pray. For what reason? He's saying, because my identity is unshakable, because my redemption is permanent, and because my standing is irrevocable, because of those things, I can't stop praying. Prayer is believing who we are and who the Lord is, and then stepping into that relationship and stepping into that conversation as if all those things were true. Let me ask it this way. Do you know why we don't pray? What are our, for these reasons, I don't pray? Paul just gave us a great list of, for this reason, I do pray. What are the reasons that we don't pray? It's because ultimately we think that the, that the, that the greatest things about us are fickle and changeable. We think when, when it comes to our prayer life, when it comes to communing with our Father, we think there's no way I can come to Him now. We think there's no way he would still receive me. There's no way he could use this mess that I've made for my good. And Paul here is saying, your identity could not be more secure. Simply put, we don't pray because we don't believe who we are. What child doesn't run to their parents in joy or in sorrow? What spouse doesn't dance with their partner on wedding night? Who of us could turn away a friend who came to us for aid at our doorstep? That's what Paul's saying. There's nothing you could do that could change the way that the Lord feels about you because he decided how he felt about you before you ever came along. What if I told you that whatever mess or fog or chaos you find yourself in, what those things are attacking beneath the surface, what all of those scenarios are trying to convince you and I of is that we aren't who Ephesians 1 says we are. And that's why we don't pray. And what we normally do is we spend so much of our energy, our internal energy between our ears, we spend so much time in the middle of the night when we're alone with our own thoughts, we spend that time trying to self-justify ourselves so that we can be what Ephesians 1 says we already are. We defend our sin, we justify our anger, we make excuses for the things we've done, we downplay our sin. And we're doing all that because we really want to know, could I be as secure as Ephesians 1 says I am? Have I really been fully redeemed? Have I really been fully adopted? Have all of my sins, past, present, and future, really been wiped out? Because that's the only way I can come to my Father is if all those things are actually true about me. And so instead of praying, we spend our, our alone time, we spend our solitude talking ourselves trying to create an image for ourselves that would allow us to run to our Father and run to our Heavenly Husband what if I told you that it grieved Jesus that you and I pretend we have to clean ourselves up before we come to him? That he weeps over that. He says, no, 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 no. It pleased me to save you. It pleased me to lavish my grace on you. You don't have to do anything before you come to me. What if I told you that Jesus was cut to the heart when you and I think that if we come to him just the way we are, we would find him disappointed in our progress? See, here's the, the mystery and the beauty of prayer. Like a good husband who woos us back to himself, Jesus would love to remind us, hey, let me tell you who I am. Because when you know who I am, you'll find out who you are too. And the way that we do that 
is through prayer. We need prayer to believe that our identity is this secure, and the more we believe that our identity is this secure, the more we will pray. Near the end of the um, NBC show, Parenthood, which if you're a Christian, you've seen it. Um, uh, If you haven't seen it, uh, hopefully uh, this will inspire you to go see it. Um, I won't ruin too much, but the patriarch character uh, is the grandfather, Zeke. He's an amazing character. And near the end of the whole series, he is seeing his grandson, Drew, off to college. And Drew has no father figure in his life. His father had abandoned the family. And Drew is about to go off to college. And all in the background for for many episodes and many seasons, Zeke, the grandfather, has been laboring. He's been working. He's been straining in his garage to restore this old beat-up Pontiac. And his grandson, Drew, is about to leave, and Zeke um, is seeing us off, and he he hands Drew the keys, and he says to him, Drew, I want you to take this prized Pontiac. Take it when you go to school, and take it now to go see that girlfriend of yours in Portland. And Drew says, Grandpa, I, I can't use your Pontiac to do that. It's your treasure. I might ruin it. And Zeke says to him with tears in his eyes, I'm not talking to you about using it. It's yours. Since the beginning of me working on it, Drew, it's all, always been for you. It's a little bit of what, like, of what Ephesians 1 is saying to us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, they're all yours. You're not using them for a time. You're not borrowing them. You didn't earn them. They're yours because of Jesus. He's chosen you. He's adopted you. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven all of your sin. He's showered you with grace. He's given you an inheritance, and he's put his Holy Spirit in you. And here in Ephesians 1, Paul pulls us in close and says to us, on behalf of God himself, since before the foundation of the world, it's all been for you. It's almost too much intimacy to handle because we shy away from that kind of love where the Father would come to us and say, it's all been for you. Since before time began, I set out a plan because it was my pleasure to do so. I came to get you because I delighted in doing so. And Paul is saying to us here, that is the God you are bringing your prayers to. When you know that that's who your God is and when you know that that's who you are, you won't be able to stop bringing your prayers to him. He's already spent everything he had on you and you're afraid to come to him? It's all yours since the beginning, way before Zeke's beginning in parenthood, since before the foundation of the world, it's all been for you. You can't lose him because it was his pleasure to save you. And this is the reason for all of our prayers. Now let's pray together. Jesus, teach us to pray. But just like Paul does here, um, we know that you want to teach us to pray by first teaching us who you are so that we might know who we are. That we can't know who we are until we know who you are. And when those two things collide, we will become people who run to our Father. We will become people who cry out to our Heavenly Husband. So yes, Father, we, we have much to learn. But more so, we have much to know. We long to know that Ephesians 1 really is true about us, that before time began, you set your affection on us. May we know that. May we live into that. 
And may we run to our Father in our solitude, we pray. In your name, amen. Friends, let's celebrate what Elliot just told us. And uh, let's sing this song of worship and praise together. Sing, What Can Wash Away My Sin.
tide, no, nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's read this passage together. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's sing that truth. In Christ alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stilled when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood. Christ. 
guilt and life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns. Calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. As we consider the words that Elliot just spoke, let us leave with this benediction from First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in peace.